Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us to listen to this message. Whoever you are and wherever you're listening from, we trust that you'll be equipped, envisioned and encouraged as you listen today. good and really exciting, and I've loved looking into the, uh, the teaching and, the, and the, the study of the return of Christ, which is what we're looking at at the moment. And uh, who was here last Sunday when David spoke on the first part of the return of Christ? It was quite funny seeing on our ministry schedule the date in the calendar for the return of Christ. <laughs> There's, um, uh, the, in in uh, Welsh rugby, there are four Welsh regions the Scarlets, the Ospreys, the Blues, and the Dragons. And uh, once a year or twice a year, they all play a head-to-head game at the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff or Principality Stadium. And it's called Judgment Day. <laughs> and uh, last year, uh, last spring, we went to, to it. And for a while, up on our board in the kitchen, we had the date and an invitation to Judgment Day in <laughs> Cardiff. But what we know about the Bible says is that we don't know when Judgment Day is, but we do know we can be prepared for it. And you know, there are different views, aren't there, on, on history and on where the world is going. And there are some views that, that view history as a cyclical thing, that basically everything is just going around in circles and essentially is actually going in a downward spiral. From bad to worse, we never learn anything, history repeats itself, and where everything is going gradually down the tubes, like the, the bath water down the sink, down the plug hole. And that's a pessimistic way of looking at things. But when you read the book of Judges... Anybody read Judges lately? Wow. That is a cycle of history where everything is going down the pan. Literally, seven cycles of sin and apathy and judgment and punishment and God rescuing his people and then sin and apathy and sin and judgment and down and down and darker and darker it goes. And Samuel, who wrote Judges, then gives us this wonderful antidote to Judges, the book of Ruth. Has anybody ever read the book of Ruth? Wow, so different. You finish Judges and you feel sick to you. You think, what is going on? Lord, help us. And he says, I have. Turn the page. (laughs) And there's the book of Ruth. And what starts in a dark place, ladies losing their husbands, losing everything, Naomi changing her name to, to bitterness, to Mara, and a young lady called Ruth who stays by her side and serves her from a very dark place. And what we see is not a downward spiral. We see an upward progression to glory. And through Ruth, we see the foundation of the kingdom of God through David because she's the great-grandmother of David. And we see this glory to glory to glory to glory. And as the church, we need to understand this is not about a downward spiral. This is about God calling us to go from glory to glory to glory to glory. Our future is secure. And so when we consider eschatology, eschatology, what a word, the study of the last days of end times, you know the joke, a theology student goes into his final exams and says, I don't know what eschatology means, but it's not the end of the world. (laughs) But when we look at these things, that we understand God has a plan and a purpose, and when we look at end times, please, 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 don't look at the Antichrist. 
Don't look at the rapture. We're going to look at the rapture today and kick that one into touch. Don't look at tribulation. Look at Jesus Christ. That's why we're focusing on his return. That's why we've been looking at the cross and the crown. And when we look at eschatology, we see these seven things that uh, the Bible talks about that we've not yet experienced, that lie ahead of us, either personally or corporately or for the whole cosmos. These are things that lie ahead for us that we don't yet understand. They are mysterious. Death, physical death. And then what happens when we die, that intermediate state now between when we die and when Jesus returns and we receive our resurrection bodies, where does our soul go? Where does it hang out? What goes on in that time? I'm not going to talk about that today, but I just thought I'd throw that out there. (laughs) The return of Christ, which we will talk about. The resurrection of the dead, which follows his return. The judgment, a day of judgment, which also follows his return. And then what heaven and hell really are. And for us to understand these things is really important because many of these things are being challenged by modern thinking and by culture. And God wants us as a church to understand what these things mean and also understand that there are mysteries around these things as well. And so our approach to this is really important. If you put the next slide up for me, please, Neil. Just want to say this right at the beginning. In all the things that we believe about, particularly about eschatology and and the return of Christ and what happens next, if you like, not to be overly dogmatic about it. What I mean by that is to say, I'm definitely right, and everybody else is definitely wrong, so there. Because it's mysterious. And God is a God of revelation. He's opening things to us all the time. And no one group, no one movement, no one individual has the full revelation on everything. We need one another. For us to understand that, for us to be humble, in the revelation that we have and understand that we've not, in a sense, earned it. God has revealed things to us and also there are things that he wants to continue to unveil and reveal. So not to be overly dogmatic. Secondly, this, when we read scripture and particularly when we read apocalyptic writings, so prophetic writings that is doused with poetic writing and imagery, not to get overly literal. Now please understand, we are to take things literally in the word. I believe there was a flood I believe Jesus literally died. I believe literally he was buried. I believe he literally rose again. This isn't sort of an analogy or a picture. But there are other things that we read in the Bible and they clearly are poetic imagery and writings. And we're to understand them as such. Revelation is packed with it. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I mean, Ezekiel goes, wow, he's, he's all over the place. But that use of imagery and language is helpful for us to understand something, but not to be overly literal. So when Ezekiel and Isaiah talk about stars falling from heaven, they're talking about authorities that are being usurped and are crashing down, whether that be spiritual or whether those be national kingdoms or empires of the time. They're not literally talking about a meteor shower or the sun suddenly disappearing, but they're actually talking about something that's a poetic picture and imagery. Secondly, that we need to be good with our hermeneutics. I can't even say it, let alone be good with it. But that's the study of how we interpret Scripture. And I just want to say this. Let the Bible interpret itself. Please, please, please never interpret the word by the Sun newspaper or Time magazine or any other form of literature or news or anything else, let the word interpret itself. It's perfectly capable of doing that. And so in our hermeneutics, we understand everything. And the stuff that we don't understand. Have you ever read something in the Bible and thought, what? 
Paul just throws out the comment, and of course, one day we'll judge angels. What? Paul? Any more on that? No, he keeps, just moves on. Or certain scriptures, you know, Peter himself very honestly says, some of the things Paul writes are really hard to understand. I'm like, well, if Peter's struggling with it, I feel a bit better about myself now. But that we use the Bible to interpret it. And anything that seems abstract or unusual or odd, or certainly is only mentioned in a very small place or in a very limited amount of time, we need to interpret it in the fullness of the rest of the word. Not to latch on to something and make that our theology or make, put, put an unnecessary emphasis on it. That we handle the word well. I also want to say this. Born-again believers who may hold different views to you or I are not the enemy. Somebody has a different view on the future and on the return of Christ, please, 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 they are not the enemy. You are not the enemy. We're serving the same Lord. We're looking forward to the same thing. And how it all pans out in the end, I'm pretty sure when we look back at it on the other side, when we finished somehow basking in the awesome glory of God with unveiled faces, and then we'd think to look back at everything else, we're like, well, I didn't think that. I got that, got that completely wrong. Lord, this was amazing. I didn't even see that come in. How awesome are you? And that's what it's about. And then we also do this. We hold our hands up and say, there are some things I just don't know. So I'm not even going to pretend to say I know. Because that's just unhelpful. I think, that, I think bats are monochromatic with their vision. It's a good word, isn't it? It means they can only see in black, whites, and grays. Their vision is monochromatic. Can you imagine what it, what it would be like for a bat to all of a sudden receive full, perfect vision so they could see everything in Technicolor and how incredible the world would look to them. And I often think when we look at these things, we're looking with monochromatic eyes at something that really is Technicolor. And so our understanding is always limited, but we, we seek to understand more. We seek to grow in understanding and revelation, and all of it lies in this book. I'm really excited about what God wants to show us in his word. Just want to pick up this thing about the last days as well. If you put the next slide up, you know, the last days have been going for quite a long time now, about 2,000 years actually. If you turn in your Bible, well, Hebrews 1, 2, the writer to the Hebrews says, in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. That was written in AD 68, or thereabouts, on a Tuesday. The first, in 1 Peter 1, 20, it says, God chose him before the world began, but now in these last days he has been revealed for your sake. Both these letters are written about 2,000 years ago, but the last days began after Jesus' first coming. And it's important for us to understand that we are, we're living in the last days, but we have been ever since Jesus ascended back to heaven. So Paul lived in the last days. Yeah. Martin Luther lived in the last days. Mother Teresa lived in the last days. Cliff Richard lives in the last days. All the heroes of faith I could think of. <laughs> we're living in the last days. And so we need to understand that time. And, and in our focusing on the return of Christ, focusing on end times, we do need to be so clear on what the word says and what the word might say and what the word doesn't say and always appreciate there are mysteries. We want to focus on the return of Christ, but we also know that there's veiled in mysteries. So Jesus says to his disciples, listen, I don't know whether Jesus knows now when he's going to come back because I find that a really interesting comment that Jesus makes. Only the Father knows. Even I, the Son of Man doesn't know. That was in his human state at that point in time. But we know that there's a mystery to us. The timing we don't know. And there's been a lot of money made and a lot of interest and intrigue about Christ's return and about lots of things around that. When I, when I, I, was, I grew up in a Christian family, I'm like Ruth, very blessed to grow up, to come to faith as a child, to grow up in a Christian family. And um, 
I think I was about 11. And in the summer holidays, a little chapel called Tabor Chapel in Merthyr Tidville, they ran a kids' club for the week. And um, it was brilliant, and they did a great work. But one of the things they did was they showed a film called The Thief in the Night. Has anybody seen the film The Thief in the Night? Okay. It's got the song by Larry Norman, I Wish We'd All Been Ready, as the sort of in the soundtrack. And it freaked me out. So I probably gave my life to Jesus when I was about five years old. But when I was 11, I probably gave my life to Jesus about eight times in one week. <laughs> and it's the story about the rapture, and it's a story about um, the Christians being taken, and uh, people on the earth being left, and coming into the seven years of tribulation. And, and, and then this kind of haunting song, two men walking up a hill, one disappears and one left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. Oh. And you know the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye, there's a film now with Nicolas Cage starring in it. Has anybody seen the Left Behind film with Nicolas Cage starring as a pilot? And um, there's a, an after-rapture pet care service that's available now in America. So a lady has started a pet care service and she's enrolled non-Christians, unbelievers, to look after the pets of Christians who've been taken up in the rapture so that they can look after their pets. And, and it's just interesting how stuff has evolved. And our anticipation of the end of the world, we're no different to people throughout history because ever since Jesus is coming back, people have believed that he will come back in their lifetime. The early church believed Jesus' return was imminent. And none of the writers of the letters chose to dissuade them from that because actually they didn't know when Jesus was coming back either. And living in the light of Jesus returning in our lifetime is a really healthy perspective to have. It's the perspective we must have, that Jesus can return in my life. And sometimes when I was a child, I was so small-minded in it because I would get to December, and I was thinking, Lord Jesus, please come back, but can you at least come back on the 27th of December so I can open my Christmas presents first? And our view of, of this life and this world and this reality limits us. When we, if we can only understand the reality that will be there in the age to come that's for us and to take a hold of that. But his imminent return has been waited for and, and anticipated ever since the early church. It seems like when Paul writes 1 Thessalonians, he does such a good job in his first letter of telling them about the return of Christ that he has to write a second letter to say, guys, I know I said Jesus is coming soon, but you've still got to go back to work. You can't just kick around at home and wait. You've got to get on with things. And one of the things that David finished with last week was get busy. Yeah. Be productive. Serve and, and, and make an impact in the world. But they believed it was so imminent that they could just wait for him and, until he came. Sit at home. Can you imagine what it was like? 1000 AD Europe was awash with beliefs that Jesus was going to return at 1000 AD. And then following plagues and wars and political and religious unrest. Even Martin Luther in his lifetime because of the, the shift and the change around the Islamic uh, nations and the influence of that believed there was going to be Armageddon and an ultimate war that was going to lead to the, to the return of Christ, and that was 1400s. And then you fast forward to 2000 AD, Y2K, who remembers the millennium bug? Put your hands down, please. Who has no idea what I'm talking about when I say the millennium bug? Exactly! <laughs> if you were born in 1990 or beyond, you're like, millennium bug? Is that something that affects your throat, or is it like a stomach thing, or... The fact is, Jesus will return. And the fact is, for us to notice, that his first coming and his second coming are part of one big redemptive work of God. 
Let us never separate his return from his first coming because it's one redemptive work. They are tied together. There's a wholeness in the work of Christ that was inaugurated by his first coming that will be consummated by his second coming and completed in that. He's coming again. It's God's redemptive plan for the world, for mankind, for his creation. The fullness of God's plan and his redemption and restoration will be fulfilled in Christ's return, but it began when he first came. Can we please turn to our Bibles to Titus 2? Just want to read these three verses and see how tied together Jesus' first and second coming are in the, in the minds of the apostles as they write. Uh, yeah, there you go, top there. Titus 2, verse 11. I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. It says, The grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. What's he talking about there? He's talking about Christ's work on the cross. The grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. His first coming. And we're instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. What's he saying? We say we're grateful for the salvation and the grace that we received in his first coming. We live now righteously and with wisdom, but we look forward with hope to what? To his return, his coming in glory. And then if you turn to Hebrews 9, and the writer to the Hebrews picks up this same theme. And he's talking about Jesus being the perfect sacrifice and we don't need lots of other sacrifices. Now what Jesus did was once and for all. Don't need to keep repeating that act. He said if, verse 26 of Hebrews 9, if that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now once for all time he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice, his first coming. And just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. Again, his first coming. But it says this, he will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. And you hear those words, eagerly waiting for him. That means there's anticipation, there's expectation, there's a looking forward to something. It's not passive. It's not when it happens, it'll happen. It's no, I'm looking forward to this. Eager anticipation. And then 1 John 3. John picks up, this time he starts in verse 3 by talking about his return and then in 5 about his initial coming. But it says this, and all of us, uh, sorry, and all who have this, what? Eager expectation about his return will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. And then verse 5 says, and you know that Jesus came to take away our sins and there is no sin in him, talking about his first coming. The first coming of Christ and his return, that is what this is all about, the fulfillment of the whole work. And we see it in the work of Jesus as the shepherd. In the New Testament, Jesus is described as a shepherd in three different ways. John, he describes himself as the good shepherd who came to do what? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd dies for his sheep. Jesus died to do what? He died to pay the penalty for our sin. He took upon himself 
the sin of the world. Your sin, my sin, everything we have done, everything we could ever do. He took upon himself our sin and the penalty that went with it, which was death. The penalty of sin was dealt with in his first coming on the cross. But we also know that he rose again. And we also know that he's not just the good shepherd, the beautiful, wonderful shepherd. He's the great shepherd. Hebrews 13 describes Jesus as the great shepherd. Not only does he deliver us from the penalty of sin, he also delivers us from the power of sin. That's now. When he ascended, he said to his disciples, you guys wait, don't go anywhere until I do something, until I send the Holy Spirit. And then they're filled with the very power that Jesus was filled with that enabled him to live a life where the power of sin was not able to dictate to him how he lived anymore. And as disciples, we can live without the power of a sin affecting us because the Holy Spirit lives in us to enable us to overcome the influence of sin. Isn't that wonderful? The power of sin. But he's also the chief shepherd, which means this. He's coming back. He's sovereign. He's ultimate. He's arch, the arch shepherd. And not only has he delivered us from the penalty of sin, not only from the power of sin, but he also will deliver us from the very presence of sin. Sin itself will be completely dealt with. That's an amazing thought because the only world we've ever known is a world that's been polluted by sin. The only lives that we've ever lived are lives where sin has influenced our thoughts, our body, our our souls, our emotions, and the people around us. And the thought of living in a world and a situation and environment where sin has been completely wiped away. What a thought. Just imagine that thought. All suffering, all evil, all death, all sickness, all things that are tied in and wrapped in with sin will be dealt with when Jesus returns. The very presence of sin will be dealt with. Think about Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24. Psalm 22 says this, starts with these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the psalm of the cross. It's the psalm of the good shepherd who died. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Andrew referred to it this morning. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, but we fear no evil. The power of sin has been dealt with. He's the great shepherd. And then in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Lift up you heads, you ancient gates. Lift up you ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. The chief shepherd is coming to establish his complete and perfect rule where sin and death and the enemy are completely dealt with. It's the work of Christ. From the cross to the ascension to his Holy Spirit being with us to the ultimate crowning in glory when he returns. That's what we're building towards. That's what the church is here to build towards. That's what we can hasten the day of, the return of Jesus Christ. You stirred by that? Encouraged by that? Because God wants us to be in faith for the future, not in fear. God wants us to have a hope, not a helpless, oh, what if? This is the future God has called to us, and it's all wrapped up in Christ Jesus, the one that we know, the one that we love, the one that we worship, the one who's worthy. And in the return of Christ, this word is really important. The next slide, the word parousia. In Matthew 24, verse 37, part of the, what we call the Olivet Discourse, if you want to sound, I don't know, biblically smart or something, but it's basically where Jesus is talking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And he talks about, in, in, in Matthew 24 and 25, he talks about end times. He talks about his return. 
And one of the things that he's, he uh, phrases he uses is his return is the word parousia, when the Son of Man returns. And that word parousia means arrival. There's a missing um, colon there, sorry. Or whatever, no, not colon. What is it? Apostrophe, thank you. <laughs> presence or the continuing presence. That's what parousia means. It means the visitation and the physical, active, ongoing presence of somebody to be with people or to be with in, in a certain place. And the word parousia was often used in anticipation of the visit of a ruler or a king or an emperor. And can you imagine, if you lived in a city around the time of, of, of Paul, when Paul is writing in Rome, the emperor was visiting a city. Can you imagine what it would have been like in that city in anticipation of the visit of the emperor? People say, don't they, wherever the queen goes, it smells of, freshly, of, of fresh paint. Because wherever she goes, it's been quickly refurbished and redecorated. So the queen must think everything smells of paint. But it was the same in, the, in these days. When a city was anticipating the emperor's visit, things would get done. Streets were cleaned. Things were painted. Buildings were, were erected and, and things were, were refurbished and, and reconstructed in ante anticipation of the visit or the parousia of the emperor, of the ruler. And in the same way, we can anticipate the return, the parousia of Jesus Christ. In James 5, 7 to 9, James says this from the next, ah, there you go, great. James 5, 7 to 9, I'm going to read from the New Living, by all means turn it up. He's writing and he's describing this. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's parousia, the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who wait patiently for the rains in autumn and spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. He uses the word patient three times. Take courage from the, for the parousia, or the coming of the Lord, is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. He's talking about the parousia, the arrival, and the presence of Jesus Christ in his return. James writes about it. Now Peter is writing about it. Most importantly, this is 2 Peter 3, 3. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is parousia, is coming again? You must not forget this one thing, dear friends. This is verse 8. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. Hear these words. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. What have we learned already from these two little portions from James and from Peter? James says, be patient, but be eager. Take courage and don't grumble. And then Peter writes, he says, don't forget about the Lord and his timing. Be patient because God is patient. And then 1 Peter 2, 28, John writes, now it's John writing, he says, my dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he perusias or when he returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back in shame. What is his instruction to us as believers? How can we prepare for the return of Christ? Remain in fellowship with him. Maintain that relationship. Invest in that relationship. Allow that relationship with Jesus Christ to grow and develop and flourish. Stay close to Jesus. 
And then we'll have courage and we won't be afraid or ashamed. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes, so we've had James, we've had John, we've had Peter, and now Paul, using this word parousia, this is an important word, says, we tell you this directly from the Lord, we who are still living when the Lord parousias or when the Lord returns, will meet him ahead of those who have died. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, so encourage each other with these words. You know, in the parousia of Jesus Christ, in his return, when he returns, he's returning to be present. He's returning to remain. He's returning to establish something. He's returning to a place that's his, where he belongs, that was given to him as his inheritance. And he's coming for a people who are his, who are his, who are his inheritance. So we must be patient and eager, be of courage and encouraged to not grumble and not forget. And in the return of Christ, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, please. Is everybody okay? Can you just tickle the angels for me a second? Just give them a wave. Can you say parousia? Parousia. It's quite a nice word, actually. Parousia. So when you're in the library and they say, can I help you with anything? You say, no, I just want a parousia. Parousia. No, I mean. That was terrible. Sorry. You're used to it by now, aren't you? Yeah. (laughs) 1 Thessalonians 4. You know, this is probably the most extensive description of Jesus' return. And um, it's worth just looking at this together today. And in verse 13 of, of 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes, he says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. And Paul is, is writing, he's saying, look, those who have died physically, please don't lose hope. There's, there's an eternal hope for them. For since we believed, oh, so, sorry, since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus perusias, when he returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. This is quite the statement he makes here. We tell you this directly from the Lord. Now immediately my ears are going, bang. I want to know what the Lord has said and directly revealed to Paul. This is, this is important. And he doesn't say this is what, uh, we, what, not what I have, but we have. There's a corporate understanding, and that's very helpful. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever, so encourage each other with these words. Now concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write to you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return or parousia will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. And then he goes on to say, people will live in a way that's unexpected. They live in darkness, they live in drunkenness, but we're to be clear-headed, we're to be alert, and we're to keep our eyes attentive, to be those, verse 8, who live in the light, be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Listen to this, Christ died for us, first coming, so that when we are dead or alive when he returns, his second coming, 
We can live with him forever. So encourage each other and build each other up just as you're already doing. In our focus on the return of Christ, it's about encouraging one another, looking forward to something, building one another up. But there are, for me, four things that clearly will happen when Jesus returns. Firstly, a cry of an archangel, a cry or a shout, and a trumpet blast. When you read those verses, you know, I talked about the Bible, interpreting the Bible. As soon as I read a loud shout and a trumpet blast, I'm taken right back to Exodus. Because when God visits his people on Mount Sinai with Moses there and he's about to reveal himself to his people and he's about to presence himself, not just on the mountain, but establish a way so that he can presence himself in the very midst of the nation as he sits on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, in the tabernacle at the heart of his people, he comes with what? A great shout and a trumpet blast. And they look up and they see the glory of God on the mountain. What an awesome sight. But what is God doing there? God is declaring, I'm coming to be among my people. And in the same way, when Jesus returns, he's coming to be among his people. Not just limited to one mountain, but to the whole earth. Not just limited to one nation, but actually to the whole world, to all nations. To everyone who put their faith and trust in him. The announcement is coming. I'm returning to be among my people. To be present, to Perusia. And then it says, the Lord himself will come down. He will descend to earth. The only mention of heaven in this description is of where Jesus is coming from. It's coming from heaven to earth. And it's to establish his rightful residence as king over the whole earth. And then it says this, the dead will rise first and we all who believe will be caught up. If you cast your minds back to when we talked about a city Roman times, the, the time, the context that Paul is writing in. And he said that the emperor, would, the emperor would come to a city and they'd prepare the city for the emperor. And then before the emperor would enter the city, the leaders and the, the representatives of that entire city would ride out through the city gates and they would meet with the emperor outside of the city walls. And they would meet with him. And that same description of us meeting Christ in the air. But then what they would do is after they'd met with the emperor, the emperor would then lead them into the city. That picture, that statement is very strong. The the leaders of that city are saying to the emperor, this is yours. This is your city. And he would lead them in to a city that had been prepared for him and his rule would be clear and evident and established there. I believe this. When Jesus returns, I don't believe there's going to be a secret rapture where the church, the Christians are going to be whisked into the air and then Jesus is going to whip us away to heaven. No. I believe when Jesus returns, he's coming to establish his rule and his kingdom here in the earth because the earth is his and everything in it. The people and all who dwell in it belong to him. He's coming to Perusia. He's not passing by. He's perusing. He's going to actively be present to establish his rule in the earth with his people. For the next slide up, please. So when Jesus returns, I want to make these things clear. I, I don't know, like David said last week, where it's going to happen. I don't have an issue with that. But what I do know is this. This is what the Bible says. When Jesus returns, it will be personal and physical. Acts 1.11, the angels say, why are you looking up to heaven? In the same way you've seen him go is the same way he'll return. What does that mean? It's going to be him. Physical, personal visitation of Jesus Christ coming in glory. Think about his first coming. Modest, quiet, only a handful of shepherds and a couple of wise men know that he's come. 
It's not going to be like that when he returns. It's not going to be like that when he returns. From the east to the west, every part of the world, in that moment of his return, I don't know how God is going to do it, but I believe this, the personal, physical return of Jesus Christ will be public and visible to all. There will be no question. Nobody will say, I'll pop out once I've put the kettle on and have a look. I don't know how God's going to do it, but everybody will know Jesus has returned. The King has come. The King of glory. As public as his arrival on Mount Sinai, as public as an emperor's visit to a city, there will be a global, total, public, overwhelming knowledge of his, of his, of his appearing. Personal and physical, public and visible, and it will be this, powerful and glorious. Jesus says this of his own return, when the Son of Man comes in glory. He's coming to bring and establish his kingdom. He's coming to establish his rightful rule in the earth and into the, into the nations and into creation itself, heaven and earth to be reestablished. I know I've spoken for a little while, but I just want to share some, something with you that I've, uh, a portion that I've been reading before I just share the last few points. If you just close your eyes for a moment, I hope you don't find that too easy. But I just want you to listen to this, this uh, statement. Jesus is coming to establish something, and we're to prepare ourselves for it, and we'll talk about those things in a minute. When he returns, there will be resurrection, and resurrection bodies will be given. The judgment will come. Righteousness will be judged. Sin and unrighteousness will be judged. Satan will be judged. There will be a judgment that takes place. Sin will be dealt with, and he will establish his new creation the age to come. But the author here, Christopher J.H. Wright, says this, we are to live then as people who not only have a future, but who know the future we have and who go out and live in the light of that future in preparation for it and characterized by its values. The day of the Lord is certainly coming. As surely as the Lord Jesus Christ promised, I am coming soon. Are you prepared for that day? by trusting in the same Jesus as Savior before you stand before him as judge. The new creation is already being brought to birth within the womb of this old creation. Are you investing your life and work in it and living now by its standards as a citizen of the city of God? There's something that we can do now in the light of his return. There's a, if you put the next slide up for a second. I've seen those bags and those t-shirts and people where it says Jesus is coming, look busy. But in the light of Jesus coming, I just want to say there are these important things for us to understand. If you turn back to Matthew 24, please. Matthew 24. Jesus is talking to his disciples about end times. He's talking about his return. And the context is this. He's told them he points out the temple to them, and they're admiring its glory and its beauty, and it stood for hundreds of years. Then it was destroyed, and then it was rebuilt. Now it stood for hundreds more years. And he says, do you see these buildings? Verse 2 of Matthew 24. I tell you the truth. They will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. And then later, when he's on the Mount of Olives, and we talked about this, the, 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 the discourse, the Olivet Discourse, his disciples come to him privately, and they say, tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? 
And for me, when Jesus starts to talk about his return and he starts to answer their questions, the first question they ask him is, when will all this happen? They're talking about the destruction of the temple. And from verse 4 through to verse 35 or 34, Jesus is very much talking about the destruction of the temple. Now, I know prophetic language can be, there can be an immediate and ultimate and an intermediate fulfillment of prophetic teaching. But what Jesus clearly describes happens nearly 30 years later in the destruction of the temple, very, very clearly. All of the things that he describes in the next 30 verses are sharp, spot-on prophetic indication of what's about to happen when the temple is destroyed in AD 70. But from verse 36, I believe Jesus is answering this other question, what will signal the return of the end of the world? And he says this, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son of Man himself, only the Father knows. And then he uses four images to help us understand and to take hold of, of, of our appreciation of how we should live in the light of his return. He talks about the flood, he talks about the thief, he talks about the groom, and he talks about a king. In verse 37, he says, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in the days of Noah. Talks about the flood. And he says how people were living everyday lives. They were partying and marrying right up to the time when the flood hit. They didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood swept them away. And then he says, two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at one, one mill. One will be taken, the other left. A lot of paper, a lot of ink has been spent on describing who's taken and who's left. Are the righteous taken and the unrighteous left? Or are the unrighteous taken and the righteous left? Certainly in the story of Noah, the flood took away the unrighteous. They were the ones who were swept away. The righteous remained in the earth. I can see arguments for either side, but what I know is this. What's really clear is this. It will be sudden and it will separate people. Two men are standing in a field. On the face of it, they look no different to one another. Two women are grinding flour together. On the face of it, they're doing exactly the same thing, and yet something within them is so different that they're totally separated. One is taken, the other remains. With us, we go about our lives. We don't look that different to anybody else around us, but we know we carry eternal life. And Noah knew judgment was coming. We know judgment is coming. And what did Noah do? Did he just hide in his ark and hide away until the flood came, hoping that the flood would whisk him away and save him from all the bad people? No. Second Peter tells us that he preached. He was a preacher of righteousness. Tells us that he warned others of impending judgment. And for us to understand this, in the light of the return of Christ, it's not about us huddling and hiding away, waiting for his return, but like Noah, we must warn others that of his return. We have a message a message of hope, a message of life, a message of eternal life, a message of salvation from sin and from complete judgment and separation from God, to live differently. There is no question Noah was different to everyone else around him. He spent decades building a big boat, a big wooden box. His life was a testimony to something that had caught hold of him. He knew judgment was coming and he warned others. We have to be those who are ready to share our faith. God is waiting patiently because he doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. God waited patiently until the ark was built and I believe he was holding out, hoping and believing that something would, would change but he knew judgment would have to come. We have to warn others. 
Then we have the description, Jesus goes on in verse 43 to talk about a homeowner and a, and a burglar and not knowing when they're coming. And that we should not just warn others, but we ourselves should be watchful and expectant. That we should keep our eyes on ourselves and one another, that we, we warn the world, but we keep watch on the house. Vigilant, to expect the unexpected. And to be different to the world around us. As I read in 1 Thessalonians 5, we're different to the world because we're watchful and we encourage one another and we help one another and we, we keep the house secure. We have the flood, we have the thief, then we have the groom and we have in, verse, in chapter 25, verse 1, the story of the ten virgins who are waiting for the groom to come. And when they come, only five are ready and five aren't. And that's about us being wise. Ephesians 6 25 to 27 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. He's talking about the bride. The groom is coming. We sang about it this morning. The wedding soon to come. See the bride so glorious now, made ready for the lamb that we're wise, that we're full of the Holy Spirit, that the oil is flooding through us, that the light of the Holy Spirit is among us, and that we help and support one another in that. And the king. In verse 14 then of, of Matthew 25, Jesus talks about a ruler who gives his servants talents to invest. And you know, he's, he's asking what they did with their talents, what they did with what he entrusted them. And in that description in 1 Thessalonians 4, I believe Paul is talking about the return of a ruler to the earth, to his possession. And the wonderful thing is, what we have now, we can work with. Not just for us to get something in heaven, but actually so that the king is honored and glorified in the new creation. That we warn others, that we're watchful, that we live wisely, and that we work with what God has given us. Why? Because we know Jesus is coming back. He's gonna peruse you among us. When he comes, the dead will rise. The rest will be brought and meet him in the air. Resurrection bodies will be established. He will come and he will establish his throne in the earth and he will judge. He's the just judge. And he'll judge based on the light that we've received, the revelation we've received, and then what we've done, the lives we've lived in light of that revelation. Good and evil will be judged. Rewards will be given. Punishment will be given. Satan will be judged and destroyed. Sin will be finally dealt with. And he will usher in a new creation. I know I've shared longer than I would normally share, but I just want to read... One last thing to you as I close. God wants us to anticipate the return of Christ with great hope, with great eagerness, with great anticipation and excitement. Just going to read. I, I know sometimes reading can be a bit difficult to follow, so I'm going to read. And I'm just, I will just ask for your attention just for a few more minutes as I read this. But this, for me, has inspired me with a fresh excitement about the ushering in of this new creation, this new order that Jesus will bring in with him when he returns, okay? So Holy Spirit, I just ask for each one of us right now that you would reveal life to us, that you'd pour in all that you want to pour in, that you'd excite us about the return of Christ and that we'd know the hope to which we've been called. Yeah. Revelation 21 and 22 very much pick up on the return of Christ and new creation, new heavens, new earth, new city. But this is uh, Revelation 21, 24 says, The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. 
People will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it. This is the new creation that Christ is ushering in in the new age on his return. This is what uh, uh, Christopher J.H. Wright says. This is a wonderful promise, but we have to ask carefully what constitutes the glory of kings and the glory and honor of the nations. This cannot be imagining some pageant of crowned heads parading their own pomp and pride in a great procession of the powerful into heaven. Can you picture that? He's not describing that. He says, I don't think the Bible, after all it has said about God's rejection of the arrogance of the great, and after all that Jesus said about the last being first, means to end with the idea that the great and powerful of the earth will get to stay that way, in bracket, inverted commas, when we all get to heaven. What makes kings glorious, to the extent that they are at all, is the accumulated work of their subjects, whether in creating the wealth of their kingdom and what it's built, or in our sinful world, fighting to protect it or to extend it. What brings honor to nations is the accumulation of cultural achievement over many generations. Think of all the things that have been accumulated by mankind. Art, literature, music, architecture, styles of food and dress, the richness of language and culture, and so much more else. These are the things that national distinctives are built on, which at best enrich our humanity. And these are things that all human beings participate in and contribute to, however humbly. These, I think, are what is implied by the language of national glory and honor as represented by the kings of the earth. These are the things that will be, be bringing glory to God in the city of God in John's vision. Now, of course, all such national glory and honor is shot through with human pride, greed, violence, and immorality. Cultural glories go along with cultural horrors. The splendor of all civilizations has been built on shameful foundations. We know that too well in our fallen world. But if only human civilization could be purged of all such marks of the fall, how glorious then would it be? Then we'll be able to see in such national cultural achievements not merely the proud posturing of arrogant human beings, but the stupendous product of human creativity through the ages. It would all resound in praise to God, the one who created us in his own image with such limitless capacity. The glory of humanity and the glory of God would at last be in harmony and not opposed to one another. But what we have in Revelation is not just a longing, if only this could be true. The Bible promises it will be so, and not a matter of if only, but when. The new creation will not be a blank page, as if God will simply crush up the whole of human historical life in this creation and toss it into the cosmic bin, and then hand us a new sheet to start all over again. The new creation will start with the unimaginable reservoir of all that human civilization has accomplished in the old creation, but purged cleansed, disinfected, sanctified, and blessed. And we will have eternity to enjoy it and build on it in ways we cannot dream of now as we will exercise the powers of creativity of our redeemed humanity. I don't understand how God will enable the wealth of human civilization to be redeemed and to be brought cleansed into the city of God in the new creation as the Bible says he will. I don't imagine it will be a matter of dusty old books any more than I will be there in my dusty old body. But I know I will be there in the glory of a resurrection body as the person I am and have been, but redeemed, rid of all sin and raring to go. So I, will believe, so I believe there will be comparable resurrection glory for all that humans have accomplished in fulfillment of the creation mandate, redeemed, but real. Goes on to say this. 
We lament the lost civilizations. Just imagine all the civilizations that have gone throughout history. Lost civilizations of past millennia. Civilizations we can only partially reconstruct from archaeological remains or in epic movies. But if we take Revelation 21 seriously, they are not lost forever. The kings and nations who will bring their glory into the city of God will presumably not be limited only to those who happen to be alive when the generation of Christ's return. Who can tell what nations will have risen or fallen or civilizations, civilizations will become lost by then? like the lost civilizations of previous millennia. No, the promise spans all ages, all continents, and all generations in all human history. The prayer of the psalmist will one day be answered for all history, past, present, and future. May all the kings of the earth praise you, Lord, when they hear what you have decreed. May they sing of the ways of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord is great. Last bit. Think of the prospect. Please just consider this for a moment. All human culture, all language, all literature, all art, all music, science, business, sport, technological achievement, actual and potential, all of it available to us. All of it with the poison of evil and sin sucked out of it forever. All of it glorifying God. All of it under his loving and approving smile. All of it for us to enjoy with God and indeed being enjoyed by God and all eternity for us to explore it, understand it, appreciate it and expand it. If this is the new creation the Bible promises, you can understand why I don't just want to go to heaven when I die. Who wants just heaven when God promises heaven and earth? Everything, everything in human history, God will redeem. Everything will be redeemed in the return of Christ. It will be purged of sin, purged of evil, and it will bring glory to God. I love that picture. I love the thought of all culture, all art, all music, all literature, all technology, even sport, everything bringing glory to God. Not just thrown away and discarded, but cleansed and cleaned as it passes through the the purifying fires of judgment so that it brings glory to God for us to enjoy in his presence forever. Can we just stand together for a moment, please? I am conscious I've shared longer than I would normally share. I appreciate your attention. I just ask you to close your eyes again for a moment, please. Jesus is returning. And when he returns, he's going to return in glory and majesty, establish and return for what's rightfully his, his inheritance. That's his bride. (laughs) That's this earth. That's heaven and earth, all creation, everything is his. And certainly the earth and all its people belong to him. And just where we are right now, just recognize afresh his rule in our lives. That we don't have to wait until his return to acknowledge his rule, but right now where we are, we can acknowledge his rule in our lives. That there will be wonderful things ahead of us that we can enjoy, but even now we can enjoy eternal life, resurrection life, taste of the things to come, taste of the kingdom of the age to come, that we can taste those things today. The life that we have in Jesus Christ, the hope that we have, Lord, I pray for each one of us today and I ask, Lord, that you'd enable us to be more effective, 
to be bold, Lord, in our warning of others, to tell others of the good news, Lord, of your coming, your first coming and your return, and that we'll live as people who are expectant and know that you're coming soon, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be watchful, that, Lord, the things that you've given us responsibility to oversee and to watch, Lord, we want to be careful to do a good job of watching over those things. Lord, we say that we want to be wise with all the things that you've uh, entrusted us with and that we want to be those who live full of your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd flood each one of us afresh right now. Strengthen and encourage and equip each one of us right now, I pray, Spirit of God. And Lord, we say we're here to work for you, to invest in the talents that we have, to invest in our jobs and in the workplace, Lord. Lord, we thank you that that's our mission field. But Lord, we thank you that what we invest in those places will also be cleansed and brought to light in the new creation as well. That nothing that we do now will be lost. But Lord, all of it will be brought to bring glory to your name in eternity. Father, I pray that as a church, we'll be those who encourage one another and look forward to your return together. That we'll spur one another on to love and good works. That we'll continue to meet together and help one another in anticipation of your return, Jesus Christ. Lord, we say we won't grumble about one another, but instead we'll build one another up. That, Lord, that we'll speak courage into one another's hearts. That we'll strengthen one another with our prayers and our words. And that, Lord, that we are your body on earth, here to reveal you to the world, Lord. We thank you for that wonderful privilege. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.